I want to address the question of whether or not Jesus is an egomaniac. Eric Ries is writer in residence at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, teaching environmental journalism and writing and literature. He published a book last year entitled An American Gospel on family history and the kingdom of God. And he was interviewed on NPR on May 13, and I tuned in on the web and listened to that. Terry Gross asked him about a quote on page 28 of his book. And on page 28, he quotes Jesus from Matthew 10 like this. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me (coughs) is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And in the book, Reese says, Who is this egomaniac speaking these words? And Terry Gross, in interviewing him, said, would you want to elaborate on that? And here's what he said, transcribed by me from the the web. Well, it just struck me as, who is this person speaking 2,000 years ago, a complete historical stranger, saying that we should love him who we are really incapable emotionally of loving more so than we should love our own fathers or sons. It just seemed like an incredibly egomaniacal kind of claim to make, close quote. So here's Jesus saying, You have to love me more than you love your dad or mom, and you have to love me more than you love your son or your daughter, and you have to love me more than you love yourself, or you're not worthy of me. And we have Eric Reese saying, that is an egomaniac talking. (coughs) Now, he's not the first person to say that or think that. Um, C.S. Lewis who many of you know from his writings, his fiction writings, his apologetics writings, Professor of Oxford, uh, writing 50, 60 years ago, came to Christ in a very uh, slow, roundabout way. He was 29 years old when he was converted, and what kept him away, among other things, was this issue. Uh, Lewis said that when he read the Psalms, where God is constantly telling us to praise him. He said it sounded to him like an old woman needing compliments. And he couldn't get over it. So, Eric Reese and C.S. Lewis both found it very difficult to come to Christ. Eric Reese left his fundamentalist background because of this issue and others and isn't a believer, and C.S. Lewis finally got over it somehow, but both of them were hindered in coming to Christ because he kept telling us to praise him 
or to love him more than we loved anybody else. And who are these egomaniacs talking like that? And why would anybody want to worship them anyway? And then seven years ago, I was reading an article in the London Financial Times by Michael Prouse. It was a book review, and in it he said this, worship is an aspect of religion I always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate an omnipotent being who for reasons inscrutable to us decided to create something other than himself. Why should he expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants puffed up with pride, crave adulation and homage, but a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects. So why are all these people on their knees every Sunday? Close quote. So if he were here, he would look around half an hour ago, and he would say, why in the world are all of these 20,000-some students standing up and with their hands in the air praising a God and a son of God who are such egomaniacs that they constantly demand that they think they're the greatest. And they want everybody else to think they're the greatest. And they want everybody else to praise them. I mean, what unbelievable, unworthy moral condition could you ask for? So what in the world are you doing here, they would say. It's a good question. I think it's a really good question. I had supper last night with Lisa and Francis Chan, and we were talking a little bit about what I was going to say. And Lisa reminded us that, as she recalled, uh, Oprah Winfrey stumbled over the same thing. So I went back to my hotel room about midnight last night and, and got the YouTube up and, and wrote it down. So I'll read you what Oprah said about this, about this issue. She was uh, describing a church service when she was about 27 where the preacher was extolling the attributes of God, omnipotence and omnipresence, and quote, then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. I was caught up in rapture at the moment until he said, jealous. And something struck me. I was 27 or 28, and I was thinking, God is all, God is omnipresent, God is also jealous. A jealous God is jealous of me. And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. Exodus 34, 14 says, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. In other words, God demands you and Eric Reese and C.S. Lewis and Michael Prouse and Oprah Winfrey, he demands that we all 
get on our face and worship him and admire him and adore him and esteem him and treasure him and count him as the supreme value in the universe. And he's angry when we don't. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, 24. So there you have it. Eric Reese, C.S. Lewis, Michael Prouse, Oprah Winfrey, perhaps some of you, unwilling to come to God because he is such an egomaniac. Always demanding that people think he's the greatest. And telling people all over the world, worship me, praise me, love me more than you love anybody. This is not a small problem. This is not a marginal issue. This, this issue that they are touching on goes right to the heart of Christianity. And if you were to say, well, I thought the cross was the heart of Christianity. It is. The Apostle Paul said, I, I have decided not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think that's as clear a statement as you can make about what's central. I'm not going to know anything about anything except how it relates to Christ and him crucified. But here's the catch. This issue, God's relentless, God-centeredness, God's unwavering commitment to magnify himself and lift up his glory and display his majesty, when that intersects with fallen humanity, at that very point, and only at that point, does the cross come clear? So we're going to get there. This message is about, is Jesus and his father an egomaniac? And what is the center of Christianity, namely Christ crucified for sins and risen again, have to do with that? That's where we're going. I grew up in a wonderful Christian home. My dad taught me by his prayers and his example and instruction, Johnny, whatever you do, son, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. That was in my bones and I knew that's right, and I've never questioned it. But my dad never told me, and that's okay. Dads can't say everything. Thank goodness. I'm a dad. Dads can't say everything. He never told me. Not only, son, do you live for God's glory, God lives for God's glory. Never heard him say that. I was 23 when I ran into Jonathan Edwards' book, The End 
for which God created, yes, he's dead. <laughs> the end for which God created the world, the goal, the end for which God created the world. Probably outside the Bible, the most important book I've ever read. What I ran into in that book was page after page after page of Bible verses making crystal clear to me God is passionate about his glory. God is the most God-centered person in the universe. God does everything he does in order to magnify God. This became so crystal clear to me 40 years ago, I have never called it into question. It's in the Bible. We deal with it. We grow into it. And I have found in my own life that God's God-centeredness is an unbelievably powerful test of my God-centeredness and yours. It tests us in this way. Do we love for God to love his glory? Do we love for God to magnify his name? Do we love it when Jesus says, love me more than you love yourself? Do we love that about the Father and love that about the Son? Or is our vaunted God-centeredness a cloak for self-centeredness by loving a God who is man-centered. Yes, I love you, I love you, I love you, as long as you make me central. What a test. What a test in this room right now of whether you are a self-centered person or a God-centered person. Because if you are a truly, deeply, down to the toenails, God-centered person, you will love God's commitment to God. You will love it when Jesus says, love me above everything, or you're not worthy of me. You will hear that and you say, yes, that's my God. But a lot of people don't want to go there at all. Does my opposition to God's God-centeredness mean that my God-centeredness is true only as long as he is man-centered, namely me-centered? And as long as he is I'm happy to be God-centered, which is just another way of saying I am me-centered. And he's useful to endorse it. This was a big deal for me 40 years ago. Still's a big deal. This is huge. I read these articles. I watch these people 60 years ago, 7 years ago, 
six months ago, same issue, over and over again. I'm not coming near your egomaniac of a Christ or a God. So when I read Edwards and I looked at the Bible, I want to give you a flavor of what I saw. Just a brief, a brief flavor of what he showed me from the Bible. Because I don't know if you even believe me yet that God is God-centered. That God is deeply, radically, thoroughly, unwaveringly committed to upholding his glory above all things. So I, thought the, I saw things like this. Isaiah 43, 6. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. So you want to know why you were created? Isaiah 43, 7. God made you to make him look good. That's why he made you. He made you to magnify his name. Or Jeremiah 13, 11. I made the whole house of Israel. This is, this is the election of Israel. He chose Abraham and made Israel his own. I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. Why did he choose Israel? That they may be my glory on the earth. That's why. And then that greatest of all events in the Old Testament, the Exodus, why did he do that? Why did God deliver Israel and do it not with one sign and wonder and plague, but ten? Psalm 106, verse 7, our fathers rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea. So obvious he didn't do it because they were so good. Our fathers rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea, yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his power. And Israel sang this for hundreds of years. Our God saved us at the Red Sea for his name. That's why he did it. He did it for his power to be known so that Rahab, the harlot, up in Jericho would get the news and yield. Or the exile, this worst of all events for Israel until 70 AD. Why did he rescue them from exile after God punished his people and sent them out to Babylon? Why did he spare them there and bring them back? Isaiah 48, 9, six tolling of the bell. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. There isn't any more God 
exalting verse in the Bible than Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, where God says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I rescue my people. I will not share my glory with another. This causes Michael Prowse, Eric Reese, Oprah Winfrey to say, no way. I will not worship an egomaniac like that. So what were you doing here? They would ask. From beginning to end, from eternity past in God's foreordaining counsels to eternity future in the consummation of our salvation, God has one ultimate overarching purpose, namely the exaltation of his glory in the enjoyment of his people. Standing at the middle of that history, that redemptive history, is the mighty cross of Jesus Christ with exactly the same purpose. So let me try to give you a text for each of those three. Eternity past and all God's predestining of what's coming for his glory, eternity future and what's destined for us out there in his glory, and right at the center, the cross. The text for the past is Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Let me read it for you. God shows us in Christ before the foundation of the world that, he starts talking purpose here, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. So now collapse that down. We're in eternity. Before the foundation of the world, God's mind ever at work, planning, and what he plans is, I will, through the death of my son, redeem a people for myself. And I will, because of my son, adopt them into my everlasting divine family. And the reason I will do this is unto the praise of the glory of my grace. That is crystal clear in Ephesians 1.6. That's why there was a redemptive history. That's why there is a cross at the middle. That's why you were drawn to Jesus, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And what's so amazing here in this text, I think, is that we see that we don't have to choose between God getting glory and us getting joy. Because the apex of his, uh, of our praising is joy. The apex of his pursuit of our praising is our joy. Because 
the apex of his glory is his grace unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, here's where C.S. Lewis got his breakthrough. The others, the others haven't yet. I, I wrote a long letter to Eric Reese. I want you to know that. I, I, I wrote a long letter to um, Michael Prowse. I've never written to Oprah Winfrey. I, I just read this last night. On, I mean, I, I saw on YouTube what she said. I didn't know that. Maybe I will. Nobody answers me. They don't ever write back. <laughs> but I want you to know that I, I, I keep trying. I, I, I don't, I, when I see public figures say horrible things and I want to stand up and tell you how horrible they are, I, I write them and I plead with them. Please, I'm not playing games here. We're not just kind of battering around in public ideas. So C.S. Lewis, unlike those three so far, as I know, did get a breakthrough. And the breakthrough he got was right at this point on praise. He said, when God demanded praise, it sounded like an old woman wanting compliments. That's what he said. I couldn't buy it. I just couldn't buy it. And then he wrote this. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, indeed we cannot help doing with everything we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. That's very helpful. What it means is that wherever you hear God saying, praise me, praise my glory, praise my grace, bring your praise to consummation, what he's really saying is, since praise is the completion of pleasure in greatness, Please come to the fullness of your joy. Come to the fullness of your satisfaction. If that is called egomania, bring it on. Because I want to be happy. I want to be happy forever. God reveals that I can only be happy in seeing His greatness. And in bringing my joy in his greatness to its completion, which is praise. So he must seek my praise in order to seek the fullness of my joy. Now, this is counterintuitive. I, I can understand why a Michael Prouser and Eric Reeser and Oprah have a first reaction like, whoa, this is not satisfying to have a God exalting himself and me getting low, me feeling small. But I've been snooping around for years trying to find evidences that even unbelieving people know this is true. And I brought along a couple of examples. One is a cartoon and the other is an advertisement of granola bars. So I'll hold them up, and I don't, I don't think the cameras can do anything with this, but I'm going to hold them up anyway. So there's a cartoon that I put in my files from 2006 of Arlo and Janice. You don't ever read this cartoon, I know. 
This is an old man and an old woman who just talked to each other. And here's Arlo and Janice out in the snow at night, okay? And he says, Arlo says to his wife, old, old wife, old man, it's so quiet. And she says, yes. And he says, hey. And then there's a blank thing here and they're just looking up into the night sky and then they're walking away over the hill and he says, ever notice the best moments make you feel insignificant? Really? What's that? He's looking up into the starry sky and says to his wife, Ever know that the best moments in life make you feel insignificant? Now, my take on this cartoon here, I don't know whether this writer is a Christian or not. If he's a Christian, I'm cheating. Because I'm trying to show you that unbelievers get this. But I don't don't know. But I think unbelievers, and I'll show you. I know know the people who did this are unbelievers because I know a guy who works for them. But, but, But Arlo... Arlo is saying we're looking into the sky and we're being presented with absolute majesty and we're getting smaller and smaller and it's getting bigger and bigger and I'm really liking it that's why we were we were made for that you weren't made to be somebody You were made to know somebody and to be thrilled at knowing the greatest person in the world as your friend and not need a mirror to look into and say, oh, because he likes me, I must be really great. No, self-forgetfulness in the presence of greatness is the capstone of joy. Now, here's, here's the advertisement. So here it is, and I brought an illustration. So here's the real deal. And here's the advertisement, okay? Get it right side up. Nature Valley Trail Mix Fruit and Nut Bar is being advertised in National Geographic magazine. I tore it out of National Geographic, okay? So there's there's the picture of this right here. See that? I don't know if you can see it or not. But now here's the catch. Here, don't sue me about this. Um... There, there is a picture of Yosemite National Park, and there's this peak called Icorn Pinnacle Yosemite. And, and stretching out in the distance is this magnificent terrain, and then this pinnacle right here, and little tiny, tiny figures up at the top, a man standing there with, with ropes on one or like this. So he made it, he climbed to the top, and he looked absolutely precarious here and dangerous, like he could fall off. Now, you're trying to sell granola bars. What would you write at the top? What do you think this says right here? I'll read it to you. You never felt more alive. You never felt more insignificant. How are you going to sell granola bars? I mean, that, that is so anti-Oprah, it's unbelievable. 
what are they into? I, I talked to the guy who, who works at this company. He says, I know the guys who did that. No, they're not believers. I said, so you're saying that these guys, as they look around the world, they sense something that'll sell granola bars. And what they sense is that human beings all over America, evidently, maybe around the world, I would say around the world, know deep down inside they're not made, made mainly to be really significant. They're made to be on top of a mountain stunned with significance outside themselves. That's what they're made for. And it's all a little, a little um, echo of God. You've all tasted this. You know you have. We were not made to get our primary joy from thinking big thoughts about ourselves. We were made to find our capstone of joy in forgetting ourselves in the presence of magnificence. This is counterintuitive at first, and then when you scratch just a little deeper, it's so right. It's so right. So, even though it's counterintuitive, it's so. Now, at the, that was the text at the beginning. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, says we are uh, predestined for sonship unto the praise of the glory of his grace. <clears throat> and I'm simply drawing out that if grace is the capstone of glory and praise is the capstone of joy, then this is the best of all worlds when God says, you must supremely delight in and thus praise my supreme glory, namely my grace. Now here's the text at the other end. This is eternity future. What does Jesus pray for you about that? Here's what he, what he prays for you. Father, this is John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me with the love that you loved, with which you loved me before the foundation of the world. So very simply, Jesus prays for you. I know he prays for you. You, not just back then because it says, I'm praying for you and for those who believe on me through your word. And that's you and me. I have believed on Jesus through the word of the apostles. And so Jesus is praying for me. And what he's praying for me is, I pray that John Piper and all these uh, saints at Passion 2010 will be with me where I am that they may see my glory. Now, Eric Reese would say pure egomania. Pure egomania. And now I hope you can see, no, 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 no. If Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is God, if Jesus is more glorious than the night sky for Arlo, if Jesus is more glorious than Yosemite Park, if Jesus is more glorious than all human beings and all the universe, then what more loving thing could he do than to ask his Father that we could be with him to see him that way forever and be transformed by him so that we're not incinerated by his glory, but rather would be satisfied by his glory. So from beginning to end, you have these texts that talk about God's purpose, God the Father, God the Son, their purpose is to magnify their glory through the capstone of our joy in praising them, enjoying them 
forever. Now, here's the problem. We are sinners, and we do not like to have another treasure greater than ourselves. We like to be central. We like to be supreme. We like to be authoritative. We like to call our own shots. We like to look in the mirror and like what we see. And not only do we not like having a greater treasure than ourselves, we don't deserve to have a greater treasure than ourselves. We don't deserve the joy that comes with forgetting ourselves and having a treasure outside ourselves that would satisfy us profoundly. We don't deserve it. We don't want it. And therefore, we're all damned unless... God does something at the center of history. So here we are now at the cross. So I'm going to read you the absolutely key text, most important text in the Bible for me on the cross of Jesus to show you how the intersection of God's God-centeredness with my fallenness and my undeserving, proud sinfulness creates a meaning for the cross, is the meaning of the cross. So here's the text. Um... Romans 3, 23 to 26 goes like this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, now listen carefully, whom God put forward, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show that he is righteous at the present time and that he might be just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus now we got to unpack that for just a few minutes first God put Christ forward as a propitiation. What is propitiation? It means God put Christ forward on the cross to absorb his wrath and his anger against my glory-belittling sin. And as Christ took my curse and my punishment on himself, it's removed from me and I am saved and forgiven and justified because I've been propitiated, Christ has been propitiated or God the Father has been propitiated by the blood of Christ. Here's two texts to show you that that's biblical. Romans 8, 3, what God could, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. Whose sin? Tell me, did he condemn in the flesh? Mine and yours. Whose flesh was it in which he condemned that flesh? Jesus. God condemned sin in the flesh. So my sin has been condemned. And it was condemned when Jesus' flesh was pierced instead of me being pierced, which is why the chapter begins, there is therefore now no what? No condemnation. Why? Because the sin has been condemned in Christ. This is called propitiation. 
condemnation had to happen. God was a holy judge and he hates our unbelief and he hates our idolatry and our resistance of his God-centeredness. And he says, every one of you deserves to be in hell, but I don't want you all to be in hell. I'm going to do something about it. And what he does is put Christ forward as a propitiation. Next question. Why did he do it this way? Why this way? I mean, this was as costly as it could get, right? This is your son. This is God Almighty in the flesh. Why this way? And he tells us exactly why. This was to show God's righteousness. Verse 25. Well, why did he need to show his righteousness? By crushing his son. The answer is very clearly. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. He just, he's been passing over sins for centuries, not sending people to hell. You're breathing and in this room right now because he's passing over your sins. And in passing over your sins, evidently, that makes God look unrighteous. Americans don't have this problem. We think if God punishes sins, he's unrighteous. Paul thought if he forgave sin, he's unrighteous. He put him forward to demonstrate his righteousness because he had passed over former sins. Why does the passing over of former sins make God look unrighteous? Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Glory of God. All have sinned and lack the glory of God. Chapter 1, verse 23, we have exchanged the glory of God for images. So God made us treasuring his glory in the beginning, and we've thrown it away. You came into the world trading the glory of God for the glory of anything else but God. And all of us in this room battle with treasuring something above God. What that does is belittle the glory of God. Every time you sin, you choose something as more desirable than the glory of God. Every time you sin, the littlest sin to the biggest sin, what you're saying is, I like this more than I like the glory of God. So God's glory is being belittled every day in our lives. If God passes over that, what does it make him look like? It makes him look like he doesn't value his glory. If God doesn't value his glory, he is unrighteous because his glory is the most valuable thing in the world. It is sin not to value the glory of God ultimately. If God doesn't value the glory of God ultimately, he's a sinner and let him be damned. But he does value his glory, and that's why Christ had to die. Here's the marvel. When Christ died, God accomplished two seemingly impossible things. He vindicated the worth of his glory, saying this much, this much, 
I value my glory that has been trampled in the dirt by sinners like you. And we get forgiven. His glory goes up and our forgiveness is secured, which means, and this is the glory of it all, and oh, I hope you get this. It means that the foundation of our salvation is not our worth, but God's worth. There can't be a more solid foundation for our salvation than to know it's not based on my value, but on God's infinite value. So when we pray, and I hope you do often for mercy, you pray like this. Psalm 25, 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. For whose name's sake? For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. You vindicated your name at the cross. Therefore, I'm praying for your name's sake that I would be forgiven. And you hear in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, which is the same, the same as to say for his glory. The age to come, the final state of infinite joy is not going to be a hall of mirrors where you like what you see. It's going to be a glorious eternity of self-forgetfulness as we behold the ever-increasing revelation of the beauty of Christ. That will satisfy us. God, I'm talking now to Eric Reese. I'm talking to Oprah Winfrey. I'm talking to Michael Prowse. And I'm perhaps talking to some of you. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is not a needy act of a needy ego, but an infinite act of giving. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is not an act of a needy ego, but an act of infinite self-giving for our enjoyment. The reason God seeks our praise is not that he won't be fully God unless he gets it, but that we won't be fully happy unless we give it. This is not arrogance. This is grace. This is not egomania. This is love. So, Father, I pray earnestly that we would be a God-centered people, that your renown would be our desire because your renown is your desire. 
And I pray that the people in the hearing of my voice would not take offense at your self-exaltation, but rather find in it their salvation. And I pray that you would open hearts right now to feel the wonder of forgetting ourselves and being caught up into the glory of knowing you, loving you, treasuring you, and praising you, and thus joining you in your passion for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.